0: Hey there, Prekaptan. Welcome back. I hope you're well. Do you love this podcast? Then leave it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or Podchaser.com. Do you hate this podcast? Please don't give it a one-star review. Instead, send me an email, tanner at nosages.com, and tell me how you feel it could be improved. I read every single review and take your feedback very seriously. We love to be appreciated, of course, but we also love to be told what needs fixing. Thanks. Today we're delving into Meditation 5.16, which reads as follows. As are your repeated imaginations, so will your mind be, for the soul is dyed by its imaginations. Diet it, then, in a succession of imaginations like these. For instance, where it is possible to live, there also it is possible to live well but it is possible to live in a palace. Ergo, it is also possible to live well in a palace. Or, once more, a creature is made for that in whose interest it was created, and that for which it was made. To this it tends, and to what it tends in this is its end. And where its end is, there is the advantage and the good alike of each creature. Therefore fellowship is the good of a reasonable creature, for it has been proved long ago that we are born for fellowship, or was it not plain that the inferior creatures are in the interests of the superior, and the superior of one another, but the animate are superior to the inanimate, and the reasoning to the merely animate? I find this meditation interesting as all get out because as of yet, we've not heard Marcus speak this way, or seen him write this way, I guess. A few weeks back, I wrote an article about a friendly disagreement between myself and Massimo Pigliucci about whether or not the ancient Stoics would have cared about animal welfare to the extent that they would have thought cruelty to animals, like kicking a dog or torturing a pig would be unbecoming of a sage, or unstoic in general. Most of us would at least like to believe that the answer is yes. My contention was that the answer is of course yes. How could the Stoics revere nature to the point of making it God, but treat parts of nature, animals, cruelly? That doesn't make sense to me. It would be like saying, I love nature, it is my God, I revere it highly, but I also don't believe there's anything wrong with dumping oil in nature's rivers and oceans. That wouldn't add up, would it? Massimo disagreed, saying that the ancient Stoics wouldn't have cared about this at all, or at least there's no evidence to suggest that they would have. And this is something that would favor both our takes. A creature is made for that in whose interest it was created and that for which it was made. To this it tends, and to what it tends, in this is its end, and where its end is there is the advantage and the good alike of each creature therefore fellowship is the good of a reasonable creature for it has been proved long ago that we are born for fellowship or was it not plain that the inferior creatures are in the interest of the superior the superior of one another marcus is i'm pretty sure talking about humans here he's saying that humans were made in the interest of their creator in the case of the stoics nature of the cosmos That nature is the purpose for which humans exist. To tend to it, to look after it, and to serve it is their purpose. And of course, to achieve eudaimonia. He then goes on to say that inferior creatures are in the interest of the superior ones. So humans are to nature as animals are to humans, as fruit are to animals, as soil is to fruit, as chemicals are to soil, and so on. This is the scala naturae. Or the scale of nature, the natural scale, which I think is better translated as the ladder of nature, just kind of like a chart that shows the importance of things from top to bottom. I think this reinforces the difficulty of answering the question: would ancient Stoics have cared about the general well-being of animals? With certainty. And it's at the root of why Massimo and I can disagree on this in the first place and still both call ourselves Stoics and probably be equally as right, to be honest. The ancient Stoics believed nothing on Earth could surpass the degree of alignment with nature that humans are capable of possessing, excepting the planet itself, because all planets are gods in Stoicism. Why is that? Because the Stoics saw the never changing orbits, behavior, and harmoniousness of planets as being so perfectly aligned with their nature that they appeared to them to rise to the level of gods. This is similar to how they think about sages. A sage has become as consistent as planets in their adherence to their human nature. Your first question is probably, then why isn't the sage also a god? And the answer is because he or she has to make a conscious effort to rise to this level, whereas planets simply are in alignment with their nature unfailingly. And this is where we get to the most difficult question of all. Tanner, if planets are gods because they simply live according to their nature with no effort and do so unfailingly, and humans aren't gods because they have to make an effort to live in accordance with their nature and frequently fail to do so, why is it that animals, say, the noble honeybee, who lives according to its nature without choosing to do so, is not also a god? And this is a really good question, and one I can only answer by saying because animals can't reason, to which you will certainly say, Tanner, planets can't reason, to which I must respond, you got me. From my perspective, if planets are gods for the reasons they're thought to be gods by the ancient Stoics, that they don't reason their alignment with nature, they simply perfectly align with it without effort, then animals must be gods for the exact same reason, because the exact same thing is true. Or perhaps it is because of the scale of planets when compared to animals. Perhaps it is because animals could get sick and go rabid, and planets can't. But, you know, planets could fall into black holes or be consumed by stars going supernova or red giant. So it can't be that animals aren't gods because something could knock them out of their orbit, so to speak, because the same thing can happen to planets. But the ancient Stoics wouldn't have been able to know that, right? So part of this has to be that the Stoics had limited knowledge of how the universe worked, and there's no getting around that part of it. But it also has to be that I cannot be the first person asking these questions. Certainly, these ancient Stoics, who were very smart, would have asked themselves whether or not animals were more in alignment with nature than humans if consistency was part of what defined alignment with nature, right? So this discussion is probably a rather ancient one. As to arrive at whatever conclusions they came to, the ancient Stoics would have had to think about this too. There's also that one time when Epictetus said, Whether you kick a stork's nest or burn down the capital, that if you did it for the wrong reason, you've made the same exact moral error. Meaning that you could make a moral error in concerns to a stork's nest, in that kicking and destroying a stork's nest would be wrong. Why? Because it prevented the stork from having a home, which it should be allowed to have as an animal living according to its own nature. And if you kicked it just to destroy it, you would be doing something that was, in a word, messed up. But you could also kick it because you wanted to destroy it, because you knew there'd be a disaster tomorrow and it was going to be destroyed anyway. And so you kicked it to destroy it so as to give the stork time to build a new nest Somewhere else, instead of potentially perishing in the one you just destroyed ahead of some forthcoming disaster the stork couldn't foresee or understand was coming, this is from Discourses 128: Petty dwellings of men were burned, and so were nests of storks. What is there great or dreadful about that? Or else show me in what respect a man's house and a stork's nest differ as a place of habitation? Is there any similarity between a stork and a man? What is that, you say? As far as the body is concerned, a great similarity? Except that the petty houses of men are made of beams and tiles and bricks, but the nest of a stork is made of sticks and clay. Does a man then differ in no wise from a stork? Far from it. But in these matters he does not differ. In what wise then does he differ? Seek, and you will find that he differs in some other respect. See whether it be not in his understanding of what he does, see whether it be not in his capacity for social action, in his faithfulness, his self respect, his steadfastness, his security from error, his intelligence. Where, then, is the great evil and the great good among men? Just where the difference is. And if that element wherein the difference lies be preserved and stands firm and well fortified on every side, and neither his self-respect nor his faithfulness nor his intelligence be destroyed, then the man also is preserved. But if any of these qualities be destroyed or taken by storm, then the man also is destroyed. So Epictetus is literally telling us you have to consider the impact and the reason behind why you destroy an animal's home if you're going to destroy it. And if you have to think this way about a nest, then why would you not think about how you treat an animal directly? And that is why I think the ancient Stoics would have cared about the treatment of animals to a degree. Anyway, it's all up for interpretation, I suppose, in that we have so few surviving texts, but we started with Marcus and ended with Epictetus. How's that for a detour? Thanks for listening today. Hope you enjoyed it. Share your thoughts by going to our Discord server at stoicismpod.com forward slash Discord and dropping them in our episode follow-up channel. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care.